You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Avoidance is interesting. <laughs> like we're all many many of us are pretty good at avoiding things either consciously or sometimes unconsciously. And and there's it's it's pretty alluring to avoid something in a way because of course when you avoid something there's a great sense of relief because you don't have to do whatever it is, you know, that's outside your comfort zone that's uncomfortable. But what I talk about in the book is, you know, it's there's a there's a kind of a dysfunctional cycle to avoidance where, you know, you avoid something, you have the short-term relief of not having to do it, um, you know, not having to feel the the feelings we just talked about, not having to feel that, that frustration, that anxiety, that guilt, that whatever it might be, uh, putting it off. But at the same time, of course, if this truly is a job, a task, a responsibility, that's something down the line that you're just essentially kicking down the line, it's just going to make it that much harder. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of the... That's the paradox. It's not really a paradox. That's the, I don't know, the, the, the vicious cycle, we could say, of avoidance. That was Andy Malinsky, the author of Reach and Global Dexterity and professor at Brandeis University's International Business School. He joins me today to jam about stepping out of your comfort zone, why it's challenging, how we avoid it, and how people do it successfully. Along the way, we discuss some of the surprising revelations from his research on this as well. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Andy, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I'm super excited to talk more about, um, you know, stepping outside of your comfort zone and your take on that, because I think so many people end up living a a life that's less than optimal or less than thriving for them just because they get stuck in in a comfort zone area in their life and sort of remain there. So thanks for coming on and talking to me about it. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. All right. So you've written a whole book about this, which is really fascinating to me. But this one topic, like, how did you start thinking about writing a book about this topic? Like, what got you into it? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of things, uh, I'd say the the most sort of the, the most obvious one was that, um, for, for me at least, was that my first, I wrote a, I wrote a book in 2013 actually um, called Global Dexterity, which is about acting outside your cultural comfort zone. So adapting behavior across cultures. And I've spent a lot of time uh, teaching and consulting and working with people from other cultures to adapt to U.S. culture and also vice versa. And uh, a key theme of that book was about acting outside your comfort zone, but it was your cultural comfort zone. And I got feedback from that book from a lot of people uh, who said, you know, the really cool book and so on. But but you know, but 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 I'm actually using some of your ideas to to help me step outside my comfort zone. Period. You know, how how about how about considering a, a book about about that, like the broader topic? And you know, it sort of struck me. I don't know why it didn't strike me before, but. Um, it struck me that number one, I had been actually doing academics. I'm a, I'm a professor. I had, I had actually been doing academic research on that topic previously. And also, you know, when I started reflecting on my own experience, I have struggled outside my own comfort zone, you know, my whole life, you know, it's, it's always been a, a challenge for me and I've, I, it hasn't stopped me, but, but it, um, I've been super conscious and aware of it. So it really was a topic that 
had a lot of personal relevance to. So it, so, so I think that's, that's kind of where it came from. Well, I should give as context, like why I think it's particularly interested, interesting because you actually have a PhD um, in organizational behavior and you've got two MAs, like one in psychology and the other in um, international affairs. And so, I mean, with that background of education and learning, there's a lot of different things that you could have gone into. And so it's, it's really fascinating that you went from you know, organizational to personal, because a lot of times we see it the other way around, or, you know, just people have different lenses for this. And um, oftentimes I think it's useful to think about organizations in the way that you would think about an individual, right? And, and we have a long history of that in the West with Plato talking about the Republic and thinking of, you know, drawing those analogies. And so on the one hand, it's, it's sort of a natural jump to go from global or to go from organization to personal. And on the other hand, it's not because you could have written the next book in organizational stuff. Um, I'm curious as an academic, how has your, um, how has your popular writing been received amongst your colleagues? It's a really good question, actually. So it's, it's funny. Um, I wasn't sure of that question, which by the way, is an example of stepping outside my comfort zone. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, what I so so there's actually another interesting point before I get to that one, which is that I discovered when I started writing for a popular popular audience, which was you know in the early 2010s, I guess 2012 or so, I started writing for Harvard Business Review, and I've written a lot of stuff. Um, I actually discovered that my natural voice, like the way I naturally write is is for the general public like mm -hmm. and because it actually comes really easily to me to write uh, you know i've written gosh at this point maybe 50 or 60 harvard business review articles and i'm a columnist at inc.com and in other places as well and it it honestly comes pretty easily to me what comes less easily is the academic writing not the thinking but the the actual sort of um I don't know. It's very sort of there's there's a specific um, jargon. There's a, there's a very specific logic. It's like piecing together pieces of a puzzle or or Lego pieces to make your argument just right. And you have to speak in a super hyper systematic way to existing theory and so on and so forth. And you know, and and, and there's there's certain ben great benefits to that. But but when I can loosen the shackles of that and do some of this popular writing, it's actually really fun. Uh, and you can also impact a lot of people. Um, but to your question about how has it been received, um, in my corner of the academic world, I would say pretty positively. You know, I'm the thing is, is that I'm actually I'm at a business school, and so at a business school, we we care about impacting the world of business. You know, so so it's not just speaking. I don't think the mission of a business school is to just sort of you know advance knowledge that other academics exclusively would would sort of you know benefit from. I think it's it's a it's a broader mission, and so within that mission, you know, I think it's been pretty well received. So and and frankly, there are, there is a movement now. A lot of academics want to get into this stuff. So it's it's kind of it's kind of cool. Yeah, I asked that because um, when I started Productive Flourishing 10 years ago, I was actually um, completing my PhD in philosophy, right? And so it was one of those things to where um, I didn't get really the the idea that, you know, hey, this this writing for a popular audience is, is a good thing to do largely. Be, well, and part of it is because my particular discipline um, – has a historically has a good um, history of or a bad history of beating up people who write for popular audiences. It's like, oh yeah, like you know Bertrand Russell, he did all this public writing, but his real work is his philosophy work, right? And I'm like, actually, his real work was his other work too. And so I'm I'm really excited to hear 
about more and more um, academics sort of being unleashed and hitting the market. And, and to your point, um, it, it really is a linguistic structure at that point because we write in reverse in academic circles. So you write where the conclusion is basically the last part, whereas in popular writing, you write where the conclusion is largely the first part, right? So pyramid, <laughs> yeah. yeah, pyramid writing styles and, and building up to that laborious sort of thing. And so when people ask me about, say, philosophical writing, I'm like, it's like a conceptual ground war and that you have to fight for every sort of sentence, right? There's, there's no free passes, as it were, right? Um, <laughs> unless it's just so common and obvious that no one will contest it. Um, but aside from that, like, it's very laborious, I think, you know, as the writer and anymore when I read, you know, work from my philosophical peers, I'm like, this is actually laborious as a reader too, right? Um, <laughs> And yeah. so thanks for sharing your experience on that. Because, you know, I've asked Todd Cashton about that. Todd is another frequent guest and he's in, um, um, he does a lot with positive psychology and things like that. And so there, there have been some tension in his career as well um, with this dual sort of academic, but also popular writing career that he's built for himself. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, there, there's also, uh, <clears throat> there's also, um, the academic career path that also matters. So, you know, to get, to get, um, to build your career in, in academics, many people are striving to get tenure mm -hmm. and tenure, tenure is exclusively determined by your, um, your academic writing, your teaching and service to some extent, but, but it's really your, your academic writing and your academic reputation among, among your peers and, and nationally and internationally. And so, you know, at that phase in my career, I wasn't doing any popular writing, you know, <laughs> but, but I think that as, after I got tenure and, and, and I, you know, I'm part of this, of a business school and our mission, I, I think should be to, to really, um, touch and influence people well beyond the sort of ivory walls of academics and so on. So I, I see it as sort of intrinsic to the, to the, to the mission of a business school. And I, and I've, I've gotten the sense that a lot of people believe that too, at a professional school, I can't speak for, you know, an, a pure academic department like philosophy. I, I don't, I don't know, but at a professional school, I, it just seems to make sense to me. Well, it seems to make sense to me generally that, you know, universities largely benefit by being, you know, um, supported by our government through, you know, tax, uh, through taxes and things like that, or at least not having to pay taxes. And so if, if you're, they are there to produce a common good. Um, and so it should be outward focused in a lot of different ways rather than inward focused. Um, and, but you know, that's a sort of meta educational, um, commentary there, but I, I was curious because I imagine writing this book, like, I mean, one writing global dexterity, um, is one thing, but I think when you write a book that's really for a mass audience, a non-business mass audience, um, that made you really push your comfort zone in different ways than the first book did, because it's not clearly that, that organizational release valve that we were talking about there. Yeah, true. Although I, I would say that um that I actually have academic research that's been published, both theoretical research and empirical research, um, in academic journals around the topic of stepping outside your comfort zone. So in some ways, and same thing by the way with global dexterity. So in each one of my kind of streams of interest, you've got global dexterity, and then and then and then reach my new book. Beneath each of these is is some um you know academic underpinning. So you know, so, so there is that as well, but, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I, you know, it's not for everyone either. I mean, I, I think there are a lot, there are plenty of academics I know who, who, who don't, who are, who either aren't motivated or aren't, you know, um, 
comfortable writing for for a general audience. So, you know, to each his own. <laughs> to each his own. And thanks for that. And I mean, I wanted to model someone or at least show someone's career that's managing to do both because I think so often we get trapped into either or. Like you either have to do this or you have to do that. Where we are increasingly living in a world of both. And so thanks for sharing that story of both with us. Ah, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for asking. <laughs> All righty. So, um, you know, the, the book is sort of arranged in three different parts here, right? And the first is about the psychological challenges to stepping outside your comfort zone. Um, since you wrote the book on this, um, I'd like you to let us know, like, what are some of those challenges? Yeah, so... Um... So I should say, uh, if you don't mind, before I even talk about that, I just want to give you a sense, the listeners, a sense of um, of, of who I spoke with for this book, because maybe that helps set the context. So I, I um, <clears throat> for this book, I I interviewed all sorts of people, um, managers, small business owners, executives, entrepreneurs, but also I, I broadened it across other occupations. So doctors, police officers. Um, uh, actors, students, priests, rabbis, even a goat farmer <laughs> was an interesting backstory to that one. But but it was, and, and I also was looking pretty broadly at it 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 situations where people in these professions uh, had to step outside their comfort zone, or at least were considering stepping outside their comfort zone. So you know, it might be public speaking for someone. It might be being assertive. It might be speaking your mind. It might be speaking up at a meeting. It could be networking or making small talk with someone you don't know or selling something. I mean, there's a wide range of kind of contexts and situations where people struggled stepping outside their comfort zone. And I, I kind of purposely looked pretty broadly to see if, w what I could find that, that was really common, you know, across all these groups in, in all these situations. And so, so, so with that as a backdrop, the, um, the, the, yeah, the psychological challenges, these are like the pain points, like, you know, why it's hard <laughs> essentially. And I found five, five, five big ones. Now it's not that, um, you're going to experience, you know, each one of these every time, but, but they were authenticity, uh, likability, uh, competence, uh, resentment and morality. Um, so authenticity is the idea that, that remember you're stepping outside your comfort zone, that, that this, this doesn't feel like me. You know, I feel like a poser. I feel like, like, like an imposter, um, doing w whatever it might be. And th that's, that's, that's hard if you're, if you're feeling that. In fact, you know, as, as we're talking here, you know, these could also be things you anticipate feeling in, in which case you might avoid stepping outside your comfort zone altogether. Um, the second one's likability. They're not going to like this version of me. You know, if I act, you know, assertively, if I if I speak my mind, if I deliver that bad news, whatever it might be. A competence. I, I'm I'm bad at this, or or I or or I think I'm bad at this, and I and I think other people think I'm bad at this. Is a public and a private side to that. You know, and right there, even if we stop there with authenticity, likability, and competence, those threats, those challenges, those kind of pain points. That's that's hard, right? That, that those in and of themselves are are, are pretty challenging. Um, the last two uh, were resentment, the idea that I feel frustrated, angry, resentful that I have to do this in the first place, uh, even though logically I, I kind of get why I need to do it, but 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 deep down I I feel resentful that I have to do this, whatever this might be. And then then morality. Um, 
in some cases, like I started the I start the book with a, with a story about um, a young woman who had to fire her best friend from her startup, mm-hmm. um, and 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 she she felt on some level that she was doing something that was wrong, even even though she saw the legitimate reasons why she needed to do it, but but deep down she was struggling with that. So 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 it could be any of these, it could be a combination of these, but these are kind of the the key pain points I found. That's really interesting, especially the fourth and fifth one, like. You know, as as I was looking through them and, and thinking um, about what you just said, like um, the first three seem pretty obvious. Like I've heard also Brene Brown talk about, you know, authenticity, likability and competence in different ways. Right. But resentment and morality were interesting ones. Um, I'd like to start with the fifth one, because it reminds me of um, in philosophy, there's a um, there's a normative theory called moral pluralism. And have you ever heard of this one before? Um, no. Okay. So basically the idea is there are different sort of normative schemas, but in this particular one, um, the thing about moral pluralism is that it has that we are in this, in this matrix of different, um, different beliefs and moral rules and that they're constantly in competition. And so the sort of classic example there is, um, you can tell the time it was written, but it's like, you know, the, the soldier who, um, well, I'll see. I'll give the universal one. The soldier who, on the one hand, is committed, or the the citizen who's committed to go and defend his nation at the same time that his mom is ailing and she needs his help, right? Um, and in that case, like there are two legitimate, like moral, um, moral feelings or moral claims or moral intuitions, depending upon the way you want to talk about them. And it's not just that one rules, right? It's not like one or the other gets to say, this is what you do and there's no residue or anything like that. But we live in this matrix of um, different moral claims and responsibilities at the same time. And I think, you know, when we start looking at the friend who had to fire her best friend or the, the entrepreneur who had to fire her best friend, on the one hand, it's this sort of sense of, you know, the, the rules by which one might govern business um, some of them, which will get rock bottom to be about morality, like issues around fairness and dessert and things like that. But then there's also the social construct uh, or the, the rules around how we would treat friends. And those are in legitimate um, conflict in that way. And it's not always easy to figure out which one wins. And, you know, as I'm a business growth strategist, and so I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and these things come up. And so it's just useful to be able to say, like, both of these values can be true and weighty for you at the same time. So, um, you know, this is a natural part of it, but I'm, I'm glad that you put the, mor- the moral piece or the, you know, sort of moral integrity piece as part of that because it's not one that's discussed enough, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting what you said. It's, um, you know, it, I, for, for years, I actually, uh, with, a, with a colleague of mine um, from Harvard Business School, uh, we studied what we called necessary evils. So tasks, and this is some of the academic work that underpins this book, um, tasks at work where you have to cause pain or discomfort to someone, but it's part of a greater good. Um, you know, we, we, we studied, you know, I don't know, doctors performing painful procedures on children and, and delivering bad news to parents. We studied police officers having to evict families from their homes. We studied managers having to perform layoffs. And, you know, in this case, there there are multiple um values in, in a way like, like this, 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 um, this, this young woman was, you know, she, she felt, um, that she was doing something, you know, I don't know, personally, interpersonally, socially wrong in, 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 
it, from the perspective of, of, of her role as, as a best friend in the relationship. But at the same time, as, as you talked about, there are multiple other sort of quote unquote stakeholders, right? There's, there's, there's the people who invested money in her business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also there are the people who, um, who, who left other more stable, higher paying jobs to, to join her firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, sh- and she was indebted to them too. So it does create a conundrum, a moral conundrum. And so that is one of the threats. And, and, and I'm, I'm talking here, you know, kind of a mo- even mo- morality threat isn't purely an emotional threat. I, I think the emotion underpinning that might be guilt, mm-hmm. you know, th- that I'm doing something wrong. Uh, and so whether it logically makes sense, whether you can somehow find a way to, 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 to do what you need to do in spite of the guilt, I think the guilt can, can in certain cases still be there and create a burden alongside all this other stuff that we're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the third stakeholder that I would put, and this is because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs that I would want to put on that one is that in that case, whatever was going on with that employee, the other sort of stakeholders hurt like the entrepreneur and her income and her family, right? Because if you're paying someone else somewhere in the way that the business works, that means you're paying yourself less. Absolutely. Uh, right. Right. And, and yeah. so, but the, I, in some ways what I've seen, that's where people really start feeling the guilt is because it's like, well, like, I don't want to, you know, do this because it benefits me. And I'm like, no, well, just because something benefits you doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, right? In fact, there are plenty of reasons that that would say that's for you, right? So right. anyways, it's it's complicated. And that's actually why I like these days, I like that particular normative theory more than I did when I was, you know, 10 or 14 years younger. Yeah, um, right. Because it more adequately reflects how life shows up. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, we have uh, taboo trade offs that we make all the time. Absolutely. And so but I found um, I, I'm glad that morality was introduced in there. But I found the um, I, but I find the resentment thing to be super interesting and surprising because I wouldn't have normally thought about that. So tell us a little bit more about that one. Yeah. So resentment is well. Imagine like for example, and and again, these these two are the ones that pop up less frequently, but they absolutely are there. So imagine that for example that you are introverted. And at your office, it turns out that to get ahead, to get those, you know, interesting opportunities, uh, it, it's it, it doesn't seem to be a pure issue of skill uh, or capability or ability. That it seems actually that the people who get uh, put on the best projects or get get the best um, opportunities for advancement are the ones who can make small talk with the boss, mm-hmm. who can schmoo- who can schmooze, who can go and 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 play golf and talk about last night's game or last night's, you know. I don't know, um, big TV show or whatever it was, and they feel super comfortable in that in that milieu in that context. Whereas you are, are introverted and you're a little bit awkward in the, in that way, and you, you don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, you might feel, and I've heard from many people this, that they just feel deeply resentful. They 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 get that they need to do it. They get the rules. They're not they're not oblivious. They're not naive, but they are resentful that that they need to step outside their comfort zone to do something that they shouldn't have to do in the, that they feel they shouldn't have to do on some level in the first place. So that, I think that's a, that's a very common, um, example of, of resentment. Yeah, I could see that too. I could also see the, um, you see it a lot with say entry level workers or younger workers who don't necessarily want to do like the grunt work. Um, like they're resentful that it's a part of the career, you know, journey for many different careers is that like you get the, you don't get the best and funnest work, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. 
And so they're Although, like resentful yeah. about that at the same time that it's like they know that it's part of the game, but they still resent it nonetheless, you know? And yeah, no, it's interesting that actually I work, so I work with, uh, with, with young people, a lot of young people. And what I try to teach them is, is that, that y- you have to see grunt work actually is a hidden opportunity. Exactly. You know what I mean? And, and that's, that's the key, but you're right from an emotional standpoint, they might feel resentful. <laughs> yeah. It's counterintuitive, but I, I, I would tell young people or just pretty much all people like a key skill to get ahead in your career is learning how to steal work from other people, not steal it in a bad way, but like look at your boss and your manager and be like, what work are they doing that I I could potentially take off their plate yeah. um, and just learning to keep doing that because that manager will want to promote you when he or she gets promoted. Right. right. And so you go to kind of go along, but you also become that person that can take on a lot of different challenges and you make everyone's life easier. Um, and those are oftentimes the people that get selected and promoted, not the people who it's a chore to work with. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting. And I, I would agree with that. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, so those are the five challenges. So, um, you know, I like the second part about avoidance strategy. So these are the things we do to avoid the um, stepping outside of our comfort zone. And um, so there's a twofold question here. Um, how do these relate to the challenges? And second one, what are those different strategies? Yeah, so... so you know, avoidance is interesting. <laughs> like we're all many, many of us are pretty good at avoiding things, either consciously or sometimes unconsciously. And and there's it's it's pretty alluring to avoid something in a way because of course when you avoid something, there's a great sense of relief because you don't have to do whatever it is, you know, that's outside your comfort zone that's uncomfortable. But what I talk about in the book is you know it's there's a there's a kind of a dysfunctional cycle to avoidance where, you know, you avoid something, you have the short-term relief of not having to do it. Um, you know, not having to feel the, the feelings we just talked about, not having to feel that, that frustration, that anxiety, that guilt, that whatever it might be, uh, putting it off. But at the same time, of course, if this truly is a job, a task, a responsibility, that's something down the line that you're just essentially kicking down the line, it's just going to make it that much harder. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of the, that's the paradox. It's not really a paradox. That's the, I don't know, the, the, the vicious cycle we could say of avoidance, you know, by avoiding you, 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 you get short-term relief, but, but it makes whatever you're doing much harder in the longer term. Um, so, and how do we avoid? We're really good at it. I found lots of ways people avoided, you know, from the obvious to the somewhat less obvious. So, you know, I, I, and by the way, when I started reflecting on my own experience, I saw a lot of these too, and it's pretty, it's, it's useful, I think, to kind of look ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, you know, what are my avoidance strategies? So for example, I remember, um, so, so the most obvious one is just simply to say no to something, you know, like, like I remember when I was a young professor. Um, so my first job actually was, a was a professor at university of Southern California in LA, um, at the business school. And this is like 20 years ago. And, uh, I remember I was very uncomfortable public speaking back then. Um, now, 20 years later, I, I love public speaking. I do it all the time, you know, as a professor, but also as I do keynote speeches. I, you know, do workshops at companies around the issues of acting outside your comfort zone and global dexterity and so on. And so it's kind of like right in my comfort zone now. But 20 years ago, not at all. Um, and I remember so well. Um, 
companies would, would, would call me at, at, at USC, not because I was so great, but I think simply because I was a USC professor and they're looking for someone to, I don't know, be a keynote speaker. And, and I would, I, I would just like dread these calls. And, and so they would, they would say, Oh, you know, can you make it on November 13th? And I'd look at my calendar and of course there's nothing on November 13th. It's like a totally blank space. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, I'm really sorry. I, I that date's just not going to work for me. You know, like praying that they wouldn't say, "Oh, but we're flexible. We can do the 12th, the 14th, the 15th, and so on." You know, so so you know th- that would be just pure avoidance. And by the way, you could couple that with rationalization. That's another avoidance strategy. Um, you know, by saying, you know, it's not that important that I. That, that, that I do this. It's not, it's not well, fr- frankly, actually, at that point in my career, it probably wasn't that important, but, you know, but, but, um, but, but that's a good strategy as well to rationalize, you know, th- that it's just not that important that I, that I do X, Y, or Z when, when in fact it might be, um, there are other strategies like, um, substituting, but imperfectly substituting. So for example, uh, for the book, I remember talking with, um, with a small business owner who, uh, w- was a travel agent. And nowadays in the world of you know, travel agents, you know, there are all sorts of online options. So, so to build a clientele, it's, it's a real personal deal, right? You need to build trust in your local community and be seen as a resource and so on. And, and, and when it kind of comes all down to it, you have to like build personal relationships. And, and this, this guy was, was, was kind of uncomfortable with the small talk, sort of like we talked about before. And he, he just wasn't comfortable doing it. He would get scared. He wouldn't know what to say. He was awkward. He didn't like selling himself, even though of course he's a business owner. And so what he would do is he said, you know what, I'm just going to post on Facebook or, or <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll send out an email blast. He had been working on compiling an email list and, you know, those things aren't bad, obviously. Like there's nothing bad inherently about those, but they're not a, they're not really a substitute for the thing you're, you're avoiding. So, I mean, those are some examples, but there are all sorts of ways. If, if you kind of look yourself in the mirror that, that, that you probably are avoiding some things outside your comfort zone, it's, it's useful to see, you know, see what they are. Absolutely. Well, and you know, I've been thinking for a few years that about you're going to laugh at this and listeners might, but I've been thinking about this post that I've been writing on writing and thinking about um, procrastination. Right. And um, so it's kind of funny when it's when it's taken a while to write about procrastination, <laughs> right? Um, and so even when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, am I procrastinating on this or really what's going on with it? And part of what I talk about in that article is that. Um, What's tricky about procrastination is it's always a top level issue. Like usually when you dig down to why people are procrastinating, you'll see like some either motivational blocks or some of the things that you've just mentioned above with the five discomfort or the five challenges or things like that. And so in that way, talking about procrastination directly is actually not that useful um, because it's not it's, it can avoid really going to a root cause analysis of what's causing it. Right. Um, and so that's where, you know, I was thinking like one of the challenges is just simple procrastination. You just don't do it in different ways. Um, but I think it can be, um, wrapped into some of these other more causal mechanisms about why one procrastinates. Cause once you start answering those questions, then you can start seeing how to nip procrastination in the bud. But if it's always just, you know, that top level conversation, um, you, to, to kind of, piggyback on Stephen Pressfield, like the resistance can go super gorilla on you, right? It can Mm. really like your avoidance strategy can get really hyper creative and you can create sort of these, you know, these loops to where it really takes a long time to, to like really figure out how you got from one thing to the next, you know, in this train of 17 sort of cycles before you just figure out like, wait, basically 
you don't want to do it. And I'd really love that you mentioned um, about these ta- about these items that are in your comfort outside of your comfort zone. I mean, one thing we talk about a lot is frogs, and this is from Brian Tracy, who got it from Mark Twain. But you probably heard this one before. Like, you know, if the first thing you got to do in the morning is swallow a frog, then do it first thing. And if you have to swallow two, swallow the bigger one first. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but the thing about frogs is when these items show up in that way. Now, normally frogs, they well, they don't necessarily have to be something that pushes your comfort zone. It could just be something you don't want to do. Like my favorite example is calling the IRS. Like no one wakes up in the morning wanting to call the IRS. Right. Um, even when they owe you money, you still don't want to call them because you know what you're getting into. Right. Um, <laughs> but the thing about frogs is there's no there's no morning. There's no day that you're going to wake up and want to call the IRS. Like. It doesn't matter. It may be days you hate it less for different reasons, but there there is no future point where you'll wake up and be like, hey, today is the day I'm going to enjoy this task. This sounds like a really good thing to do. It's just going to get bigger and hairier and wartier, that frog is, that is, right? It's just going to get bigger. So you might as well go ahead and get it done sooner, which was Mark Twain's point, which is Brian Tracy's point, which is, you know, now our collective point here is like, you know, just being really honest that you're not going to like it at any point but you're probably not going to like putting it off in the end more than just jumping on it right now. Yeah, I actually have an, I, I, I know about that saying, and I actually have an opinion about that too. Just as a bit of a side note that I, I love that saying and I love that idea, but I think there's also another twist to it too, which is that, um, you know, if you know yourself, <clears throat> it might not be the, like, like Mark Twain maybe, maybe felt that it was useful for him to kind of get it done in the morning, but if you know that you're actually a, a night owl, mm-hmm. and that and the frog is something that you think you'll be way more efficient at doing mm-hmm. at night, you know what I mean. There's there's that sort of addendum to it, which yeah. is also know, know yourself, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> well, yeah, like, it's kind of like the first things first thing, right? I think a lot of people when they hear first things first on the tactical level. They also think, well, do it first thing in the day. But to your point, right, first thing first doesn't necessarily mean sequence, right? It can mean your first and most primal energy, right, is when you would slot something like that. So if you know you're hot from one o'clock till, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, and that's the type of energy you need to do that given task, first thing then means do it through, do it at one to four, not when you're dead. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I totally agree with you. Yes. Um, but at some point the, the, the point is still there. Like the frog, you're still going to have to get it done. Right. At some point. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, uh, right. So you don't get out of, you don't get out of that. You have to do it. Right. It's just what's negotiable is when you do it. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. and so just while I'm saying that for, for listeners who haven't, haven't read, we'll link up to that. But another thing that I want you to think about is sometimes it's super helpful to put the frog between two things that you love, sort of sandwich it in between something that actually you are motivated and can get some momentum on. And then you do the frog and then you end it with the thing that you're like really want to do. And that way you don't feel like your entire day has been wrangling this type of thing. And just, you know, we tend to remember, um, we, we don't have, well, I'm talking to a psychologist, so he knows this better than I do, but we tend to remember the last part of an event more so than we do the beginning, the beginning and middle of it. And so if you can end your day with something that's motivating, it can sometimes be a lot, a, a good way to put an end cap on it. So you don't feel like your whole day, you were just wrestling this frog and, and hating life. Mm-hmm. Wise advice. <laughs> Do what? Why well, I said wise advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we, we know the challenges, we know the avoidance, the avoidance strategies. So um, what are some things that people can do to really like acknowledge those, 
those challenges and avoidance strategy, but still come up with a positive strategy that gets them moving forward and outside of their comfort zone. Yeah, I found so 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 again, like across all the people that I that I spoke with, and I and I also work with people, by the way, one on one, on helping them step outside their comfort zone. So that's that's another sort of source of information here. I found three three key things. Uh, one was one was um, uh, conviction. Another was customization, and then a third was clarity. And it was kind of the the trio of all of them that seemed to kind of increase the odds of people being willing to take a leap. And 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 I can say at the end why taking a leap is so critical. Um, but um, but yeah. So 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 conviction is having a sense of purpose, understanding your why. Uh, you know, like like like, um, and that could be professional, that could be personal, it could be a combination of professional and personal. You know that that that, that this is something that I. I, I, you know, I've, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to own my own business. I, I just know that this is something I need to do to achieve that goal. And, and, and keeping that in mind can kind of give you that, that, that power, that motivation to, to fight through and enact despite the fear or discomfort you experience, or maybe for you, it's personal. Like for me, I can tell you it's often personal. Like, um, my, my, my source of conviction, like I, you know, I have two, two kids and, uh, they're, they're now preteens and, and I'm always trying to, you know, I don't know, coax them outside their comfort zone at, at, at an age appropriate, you know, level, you know, and maybe have them try an activity that's not comfortable for them, but might be good for their growth and things like that. And so, but, so I'm doing that, but then I look myself in the mirror and I'm like, gosh, you know, dad, are you, are you doing the same thing? You know, mm-hmm. am I doing it? And so like that, that I have to tell you, that ends up being my greatest sense of, um, of, of, of conviction, but you know, wherever it comes from, find it, locate it, embrace it. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a powerful resource. Um, so that's number one. Number two is customization. This is probably the most kind of exciting slash surprising thing I found. And, 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 and it's, it's the simple idea that there's no one size fits all version of anything anything outside your comfort zone, you can tweak it. You can customize it sort of like a, like you buy a suit or a pair of pants, uh, at the store and then you bring it to the tailor to have it kind of fit you and your body, you know, just tweak it here or there. And you could do the same thing, uh, with situations outside your comfort zone. And I saw so many examples of this, you know, people didn't literally say I customized, but they kept talking about this thing they were doing. And, and, and it, it clearly was all examples of customization. You mm-hmm. know, it might be, it might be, um, I don't know, you know, it might be your behavior. It might be your language. It might be the timing. It might be the context. It might be a prop, like a literal prop that you bring to the situation. Like I'll give you one quick example here. Um, and I have so many examples in my book, but, uh, one, one cool example that's actually not in the book. It was someone who, uh, read, read my book reach and, 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 you know, sh- she thought it was a cool book. And she, she said, you know, it was really helpful to me because, um, I, I, have always been really uncomfortable, um, socially, um, in, in like, you know, um, making small talk with people I don't know, like at, like at parties. And, and so she said she would be kind of like a wallflower sitting in the corner, not saying much. And, but she didn't want to be that way, but she was just awkward and uncomfortable. And she said, after reading this piece about customization, she said she had an epiphany was that it, it turns out she likes, she likes, um, photography as a hobby. And, uh, and she decided one day to bring a selfie stick to, to a party. And she said it was like, it totally changed things. So she had this, I call it a prop, like a, like an actor as a prop. She brought this prop and, and all of a sudden people started saying, what's that? And she said, oh, it's a selfie stick. And they all knew like what a selfie stick was, but some of them, many of them actually didn't know what it looked like because they hadn't used one maybe. And they're like, oh yeah, how does that work? And then she would start to show them. And, and by the way, you can already see how this is different from what 
it used to be like for her. Mm-hmm. And it totally catalyzed her experience. And, and she, she, it was just such a, like a great tweak. Uh, so, so, you know, there are many examples, many different tools you have, but, but customize. So that's, a, that's the second thing. Um, and we can stop there, but, but that's, those are two, two powerful ones. Yeah. Well, what I want to say on this one is, um, part of customization, um, it's entailed in this, but I just want to highlight is that it's actually adapting, is it's adaptation. And the reason I want to pull this out is because a lot of times if you are butting up against the edge of your comfort zone, um, it's really easy for sort of your resistance and those avoidance strategies to kick in. And like the first thing that you try to do, it doesn't work. And you're like, screw it. It just doesn't work. Right. Um, and so rather than doing that, think about like, okay, that attempt didn't work. How might I make this work for me better? Or what might I change about this to make it work in my context? Right. Um, and so, Usually we do that about things that we're super excited about, but I've learned working with people getting outside their comfort zones, especially there, is you're more likely to put up that wall of like, nope, didn't work, don't have to do it. You know, I'll go find something else to, you know, research and figure out how to do it because you really don't want to do the thing, right? And so customization includes in that way, added, you know, adapting your approach to to update and and you know, Andy, you, you stole my, my, my Taylor example, because normally on this is what I would say is, you know, most things that you try, especially when it's around habit forming or around getting out of your comfort zone, it's like when you go to the store and you buy a pair of jeans and they look awesome and they feel awesome at the store, but then like the first day you wear them, you realize they're rubbing in all the wrong places. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it takes a while to break in those jeans in a way so that they fit and they become those super comfortable jeans that, that no one can take from you, right? And so every everything around habits or around, you know, getting out of your comfort zones, I think has that sort of quality to it. It's like the first thing that you try, it doesn't fit right. It doesn't fit absolutely right. And you need to either wear it in or take it to a tailor, depending upon which metaphor you want to use it, use and, and know that that's part of a process rather than letting your resistance and sort of your discomfort about it shut down and, you know, um, prevent you from going forward. No, I, I think you're right. And, and I think psychologically too, what, what you say and, and is consistent with what I'm talking about too. You know, when, when you're very anxious, it's, 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 it's sometimes hard to, to sort of be innovative and creative. Like if you think about like your, 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 when you're like super stressed about something, that's probably not like your most creative, you know, moment. <laughs> but the problem here is that it does take a little bit of a leap to be able to have that bit of creativity and have that insight. You know what? I, I, I can do something here, even if you're kind of feeling helpless. But my, my message is that is that you have more power than you think. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and when you start to think that way, you can actually leverage your creativity, your, your sort of experimentation, sort of like a chef. You know, you can you can tinker with the ingredients until you get the recipe right. And, and, and I found I just found so many cases of it. And it's it's a powerful tool. Uh, so so I think we're on the same wavelength on that one. Absolutely. And where this ties into that first challenge that we, one of the first challenges that we talked about with competence is that some, I mean, I like Dan, Dan Pink's book drive when he mentions, you know, autonomy, mastery, and purpose as sort of the three drives, um, that, that really motivate us. But the thing about it is, is so many of us want to be competent at everything that we do. Um, but when you're trying something new, you've got to be bad at it before you can be good at it. Right. Um, and unless you're just one of those freakish natural peoples, which don't actually happen, you normally have some type of background experience that you're leveraging that you may not be cognizant of. But 
for most new things to be good at it or to get good at it, you got to be bad at it first. And that's where you have to have that sort of like ability to customize and adapt and just give yourself time to get there. Um, and you know, that's where you mentioned the conviction comes in really, really handy and the clarity that, you know, knowing that you got to be bad at it before you're good at it. It just makes that space for it. But if you think, especially as an adult, that every time you run up a comfort, like against a comfort zone, like you're going to be competent out of the gate at that, like you're not actually going to be growing, you know, outside your comfort zone. No, I, I totally agree. And I mean, I talk in the book also about, you know, setting yourself up for success. And, you know, that has to do with, um, you know, uh, like, you know, if you're going to go run a, a 10 K, what do they call it? Couch to 10 K or couch to 5 K, you know, y- y- the, those programs like to, to get you active, you don't, I don't think you literally get off the couch and run a 10 K. I, mean, I think you have a, you kind of set yourself up on a program where you're, you know, continually stretching outside your comfort zone, but small stretches, uh, creating, you know, small wins for yourself, uh, putting yourself in the position to succeed. And if you do fail, um, so to speak, if you do slip up or whatever, uh, trying to have more of a learning mindset around it and seeing, seeing, you know, seeing your, um, your, 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 um, your slip up is, is, uh, or failure is data. You know, that's, that's data for how I can improve next time. And, you know, that does take a bit of a a leap. It does take a bit, a bit of a, you know, self-reflection, a bit, um, to have a little bit of distance from yourself. But I think that, that if you're able to, to do that and see, 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 uh, failure as data, it's very, very, very powerful because you'll start to, you'll start to realize exactly what you just said, that you have to fail before you succeed. And, And then that, I think that's an asset for people, uh, in, in, in stepping outside their comfort zones. And one last thing on this point before I, before you talk about the leap, because you mentioned it like three or four times now, so you got to talk about it. But um, <laughs> when you are starting something new like this, um, just remember to, if you're going to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to people who are at the same stage of development as you are. Like, don't compare your level of competence and, and performance and mastery with someone who's been doing it forever. <laughs> Um, compare it to someone who just started and you'll probably, you know, have a better time of, of going about it. If you need to compare it to anyone, the best I think is to compare it to your own sort of thing. So if it's the couch to 5k, like yesterday you were on the couch today, you ran a block, that's a win. Right. Um, uh, and then the next day, maybe you run two blocks or whatever that, that program might be. So you can compare, you know, the first best thing I think is to compare against yourself. But if you do need to compare yourself against someone else, always start with people who are at your same level of competence or mastery. Um, when you look at where you quote unquote should be versus where you shouldn't be. I I would, I would agree with that. And also have, you know, treat yourself with the same level of empathy that you would if, if it were a good friend who was struggling with something, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. don't be, you wouldn't beat up your best friend. So don't beat up yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of those hardest lessons to learn. It sounds so simple, but it's like <laughs> I know. You know uh, oh, it is. It is. It is hard. Yeah. But in ter- in terms of the leap, I just I'll just I'll just say one word about it, which is, um, <clears throat> you know, on the internet, you'll when you Google comfort zone, you look up Google images and so on on comfort zone, you'll see people taking leaps, like just take a leap, and people leaping off this and that and so on and so forth, and you know, it, it is really critical to take a leap. In 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 in, but 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 there are a couple things about it. Number one what the internet's not telling you is all the work and the strategy and effort and courage that takes that, that it takes to kind of get yourself to the point where you're able and willing to take a leap. So that's, that's what we've been talking about so far. But then once you do take a leap, here's why it's important. 
The reason it's important is because you can learn. And what you can learn is you can learn something about yourself. And I kept hearing this time and time again from people in all sorts of situations as we talked about, you know, people would say when they actually did try something, they they had this like little mini epiphany, which was, this isn't as hard as I thought it was. Yeah. Or, or, or I'm actually a little bit better at this than I thought I was, Right. And then that goes back to our avoidance cycle we talked about before, which is when you have that lived experience and you say to yourself, whoa, this wasn't actually as hard as I thought it was, that is going to increase the odds that you're going to try it again as opposed to avoid it. And that's where you break that vicious avoidance cycle and you start more of like a, I guess, a, a virtuous, positive cycle where you're actually experimenting, trying, going off and learning and then trying again. And that's where you start to develop that confidence, that courage, that mastery and so on and so forth. And that's that's like the absolute key, I think, to stepping outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times like people focus so much on the leap and I'm like, how about we just start with a lean, right? How about yeah, exactly, we just right. lean yeah. into it a little bit, right? <laughs> right? And see what happens before we leave, right? Because yeah. the, the, just changing the one letter makes a big difference because you yeah. can get the dopamine hit that you need from the lean. Um, and it's not all, it's not nearly that risky. And so leaping into, you know, a huge thing, you know, obviously there's a lot of different safety and psychological mechanisms we're going to put in place, but like we can all lean a little bit, you know what I mean? Um, and then once you lean, you can lean more or you can get the data that you need to figure out that maybe the way that you leaned wasn't the right way, but you know, it's at least moving forward in that way. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I I totally agree with that. Alrighty. So as the guest on today's, um, episode, you get to leave our listeners with a, um, challenge or an invitation, depending upon which one resonates most with you. So based upon what we've talked about today, Andy, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? I would challenge, I would challenge all you guys out there to, um, to take a, take a piece of paper and draw three circles. Um, and in one circle, what call one circle, your comfort zone, call another circle your stretch zone and call the third circle your terror or panic zone <laughs> and then then take a take a few minutes and try to think of a of maybe a couple of situations in your life or tasks or responsibilities or whatever it might be that kind of fit into each one of these right so so try to get like i don't know 3 to 5 situations in each one and then start to look at that stretch zone in particular. You know, which one of those means the most to you? Which one of those do you think will be, you know, something that you really would like to kind of dedicate some effort towards working on? And, and that's where I would start to, to, to really focus your attention in terms of stepping outside your comfort zone. So, so that's my challenge. Uh, my other challenge, of course, is to take a look at my book. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, of course, I mean, I'd, I'd just be honored, you know, as an author, I, it, that I have to be completely honest is that um, it, it, it is uncomfortable for me to kind of promote myself and so on and so forth. But as someone, you know, told me recently, she, uh, she said, she's a good friend. She said, you know what? You wrote a book. You can't hide that. So this is my attempt not to hide it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, and I'm thinking that um, there'll be some other things where they're going to hear about reach as well. So um, Andy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is great. This is fun. And all right, listeners, you heard it from Andy. Let's make those three lists of the things that you're comfortable with, the things that stretch you, and the things that like just really cause terrors. Hone in on that stretch area and pick one of those things to lean into 
for the next week. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 